I'm Jerry Durham. And I'm Andrew Rothschild. And we are the Healthcare Disruption Podcast, bringing you information, ideas, and thoughts from the outer edges of healthcare, and sometimes even from outside of healthcare, where the true changes will occur. What we believe is the singular focus on the patient will bring about the only true change in healthcare. Thank you for coming and enjoy today's show. Hello, and welcome back to the Healthcare Disruption Podcast. I'm Jerry Durham, and I'm flying without my sidekick, Andrew Rothschild, today. So um, it's just me. Yet today, you are witnessing history on the Healthcare <laughs> Disruption Podcast. It's, it's really history. It's history because I have someone on my podcast with three initials after their name that no one ever thought I would ever have on my podcast, and that's a PhD. So I am proud to be... Uh, Proud to be bringing you this podcast uh, today, and uh, in a little bit, you'll hear why I chose to bring it, because you'll be like, Jerry, you hate most research. And I'm like, no, I love research. I agree with people. That's the important thing to remember. And um, fortunately, this person, of whom I still don't know how to say their last name properly and did not get that before we came on, so this will be the first time I hear her last name. But uh, I'd like to welcome Maxie from North of the Border. Maxie, how do we say your last name? I apologize. Michak. That's why I don't Polish name. That's why I don't know how to say your last name. <laughs> All right, say it again for me. Michak. All right. How much Michak? If Michak could check me. There you go. Michak. As only Michak. a Canadian could say. <laughs> Maxi Michak. And Maxi, just for a little context, I met Maxi where people? On Twitter. Thankfully, as I just found out, she's not on Facebook, she's not on Instagram, and if it wasn't for Twitter, I still would not know her. So thank God for Twitter yet again. And um, I think we'll dive right into, some of you saw the, uh, the paper I posted on Instagram and Facebook earlier this week that has really been uh, something that's caused me to go even deeper on this whole thought of therapeutic alliance and managing expectations and the worst five-letter word, eight-letter word I could say to anybody in healthcare, placebo, um, even though we're not going to use that word today. Yet, um, when I went up to Canada to, tr- uh, to teach with Jeff Moore in December, Jeff Moore sent me a paper the night before I got on the plane. And he said, you need to read this paper because, and by the way, Jeff, Reese, uh, Jeff Moore and Justin Dunaway get full credit for being the reason I do read research now. I just want to the record for that. And Jeff Moore sent me a paper and he said, Jerry, this is right up your alley. And in my opinion, this really ties together everything you're talking about. And this whole idea of therapeutic alliance, managing expectations, and its role in, we're going to say physiotherapy, but let's be real people, its role in healthcare. And again, this is healthcare disruption, and we are physios, and we're all going to talk about physio, so we'll keep it there, yet this is truly about healthcare. And it was a paper by Maxi, and that's why I wanted, we, we had had a little conversation on Twitter before, but this was the one that really solidified that. I need to reach out to her and get her on the show and have a deeper discussion. And so that's why I brought her on today. So welcome, Maxie. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jerry. It's good to be here. And as we all know, it is the start of the second season. So who is your team in the NHL hockey playoffs, Maxie? Oh, I would have to say that it would be, you know what? I'm a Habs fan, and so it's really it's hard for me right now. It's still painful. Wait, what's uh, because, that? Uh, because the, the Montreal no, no. Canadiens are not in the playoffs. Oh, okay. So, right? oh, 
Oh, so now I, we're really I, going deep. I didn't know hard, I was going to. It's hard for me emotionally. Um, but however, there are two teams that um, I'm, a, I'm a huge Sidney Crosby fan. Okay. Uh, I, just, I just love the way that guy plays. Um, and, and so Pittsburgh has always been uh, a team that I've, that I've resonated with, like, like Pittsburgh a lot. But the Jets, the Jets. And you want to know what? I have to put a, give a shout out to my friend Jim Millard. Um, in Ontario because he's a huge Leafs fan and I said like I, I'm going to support him and he, they took a loss to, to the Bruins last night and I haven't tweeted to him yet um, and but I, I will have to and I, I do that's but and they lost because apparently I didn't tweet there that's, you go that's, that's awesome. actually what happened and so that I just have to say that so Toronto it's hard for a Habs fan but for my friend Jim Anything it's going to be good. Me. So this this podcast is being recorded just about three weeks before it's going to be released, three to four weeks. So by the time this goes off, um, we'll see there will be some significant um, changes probably in some of this stuff. And then potentially Maxie will have no teams in the NHL. <laughs> I'll have no teams. <laughs> I'll just the NHL, be- I, I'm, we're going to go here right now. The NHL playoffs are the most intense thing I've ever seen. And it's like every – if a series doesn't go seven games, every I swear – are amazed right every series it is it's the hardest hardest trophy to win yeah it's got to be and yeah because because i would assume they're the team that finally wins has probably played you've had to win you've had to win 16 games is that it oh man you've had to you've got you have to gone through four Four series you've had to won 16 games but each one of those series could have gone seven games yeah right 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 right. 28 games right and um Oh right, so it's twenty-eight games. You have to win sixteen of you them, to, right? Yeah, so and so you could, if you you could, the minimum amount of games you could play would be sixteen. The maximum, if every game, if every yeah. series went to seven, so yeah, because there are four series, I believe. Yeah. yeah. All right, we're done with the podcast because we know <laughs> baseball. Oh my god, and baseball is only in April. We're just going to leave that here. We're exactly. Friday the thirteenth, and my Giants play tonight. What a coincidence! But they did win last night. Just, and this may be the last time you ever heard that in four weeks. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm really excited to have Maxie on. Again, I want um, to talk – we're going to talk a little bit about the paper I posted that pulled it together, and and I want her to dig deeper into it. I'm not sure – well, I'll probably share my takeaway. Yeah, the, the other thing – let's just start here, Maxie. Sure. Um, hold on one second. I'm going to cough. Let's start here. One of the things we've really connected on in, is, is what, what I think people are going to hear today is, th- is the role of this therapeutic alliance of which I call trust. You think it's okay to call therapeutic alliance trust? Mm, no. Okay, tell me. I, I would say th- trust is a part of the therapeutic alliance, and then you have the therapeutic relationship, right? Okay. So the alliance... Therapy. Do you want a definition? Like, do you want me? Yeah, to- yeah, okay. yeah. Please. So, uh, therapeutic alliance. If we're if we look at the psychotherapy literature, um, because we don't have a lot of literature within physio, a lot of really specific literature. Yeah, and this is important to remember, people. Right? Yeah, this- a lot of, not a lot of specific research. So, what we tend to do in physio um, is we co-opt theories and models from psychotherapy because really. Um, there, there are models that, that for example, um, in this paper, in the Common Factors paper, uh, uh, Frank and Frank, uh, they're really pan sort of um, theoretical or meta-theoretical 
idea around what psychotherapy is. Really, they, they also say this applies to all healthcare providers, right? Board and Siri of the Working Alliance, um, agreement on bond, uh, agreement on goals, agreement on tasks, and the bond or that trust that you're talking about. That they claim that that's pan theory, that's pan profession that can apply anywhere. Um, but really, when we're talking about about physical therapy, um, we don't have any theories of our own. So we take those, we kind of co-op them, and we use them to have good for us, right? We're looking outside of ourselves. That's great. However, um, this is a, this is another maybe another conversation, but we need some more really. And there's been calls for it within the literature. Some more rich, deeper understanding of what what are the components of that within physical therapy. And so that's where my dissertation went. But to circle back to the original question, um, trust. So trust is a part of that bond, right? Trust is a component of it. Um, in the work that I did interviewing uh, patients and therapists, the bond was composed of trust, caring, respect, and rapport. So that's what patients and therapists, you know, were really, really were able to articulate. Not, they didn't use those words necessarily, but certainly that's through the analysis, that's what came up. Um, so, so the bond within, and then within physical therapy, that bond, what they talked about was there was a, there was a professional component to it. There was a professional thread to it and there was a personal thread to it. And that could vary depending on you know the personalities of the people involved uh, um, even just how much the therapist was willing to um, uh, know their patient on a more personal level um, not personal outside of the clinic but talk about things outside of why that patient showed up to practice showed up in your practice um, and and how much they were willing to tell about themselves right and the same with the patient so there's a whole bunch of leeway in in how that personal sort of element or thread develops, but definitely there's a professional aspect to the bond, right? And to the, and to trust. So then when we're talking about, well, is the therapeutic alliance trust? Well, so trust is going to be a part of that, right? It's going to be a part of that bond. But as I said, when we're talking about psychotherapy theory, if we draw from that literature, really the therapeutic alliance is it's a working alliance, right so so it's two people could be more though could be family right involved in that too could be a rehab team maybe um it's a it's a working relationship where you have you have a goal that you've agreed on you've got a, a plan that you've agreed on to get there and then you've developed through that process for various reasons you've developed a bond right when we're talking about the therapeutic relationship right? Therapeutic Alliance stays really more focused on that. Why is that person in my clinic? The therapeutic relationship expands beyond that a bit. And so in the psychotherapy literature, you'll have um, uh, Charles Gelso did a lot of work uh, describing um, the, therapeutic, the therapeutic relationship as having the components of the, the working alliance and the real relationship right? So real meaning that personal element. There's something about your interaction that, that, and the way you're, you're working together that has a, a more uh, human feel to it. It's about the humanity of that relationship. 
Um, and I believe also his third component is tripartite. Then there's the transference piece, the transference, co-transference piece, so psychodynamic. We won't, don't need to get into that, but, but so it, there's really is a lot to it. Um, when you try to sort of pick it apart a little bit. So yeah, so it kind of, I have to sort of bite my tongue a little bit when people equate the therapeutic alliance with trust, just trust, or equate the relationship the with the therapeutic alliance, just because of my background and the, yeah. the depth that I kind of understand it or like to think I understand it anyway. No, that's good. And by the way, people that we have now talked more research on this podcast than we had in all 27. <laughs> So, uh, no, this is good. This is good. So let, let me ask a clarifying question on this. Mm. So when we look at the research that I like to reference, and I want to make sure I'm saying this properly, this is why I'm asking. Because um, if I'm going to use this to beat people down, I want to make sure I'm using <laughs> it properly because that's why I read research. Um, I, actually, I just like to use the research to draw people back into it. It's not a one, it's not a one-off thing. Um, so this correlation between therapeutic alliance and physiotherapy outcomes. So is it the therapeutic alliance that you just outlined or is that more about a, is that more about that, um, that therapeutic relationship, would you say? Oh, you know, I have, because there's so really little, like we're just kind of starting to scratch right. the surface of this, right. You know, and it's, it's growing, right. It's certainly right. growing in terms of, the people that are interested in it and that are studying it and they're trying to evaluate it and evaluate its influence on, on, you know, outcomes. Um, certainly it's been around uh, talking about patient satisfaction. Yeah. Satisfaction with services for a long right. time, but not pinpointing it as much. Right. So, you know, um, I would have to say that, and I'm going to backward engineer this because I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about studies and what, when they're evaluating it, they're often using psychotherapy tools to evaluate. And they're usually, they're oftentimes using the working Alliance inventory, which is a reflection of that working Alliance agreement on goals, agreement on tasks and, uh, and the bond. Um, they're using some sort of um, variation of that or that uh, particular outcome measure. So I would say we're probably talking more about the working alliance. And there's a bit of a, when people mix, use those terms in papers going back and forth, um, I think as we get more clear about it and move forward um, and start maybe uh, talking a little bit more about that personal element of, of the, the therapeutic relationship that we don't like to, we get very uncomfortable with that as physios, right? Whoa, we're crossing boundaries and there's ethics and, oh, you know, what's going to happen if we do that? But, um, but uh, once we start talking more about that, I think that'll get flushed out more. And there's a, a student I'm working with right now at the University of Alberta who is developing an outcome measure that's using the framework that came out of my dissertation. And so we're looking at how do you bring that personal element into an outcome measure, shall we say. Very hard to evaluate. It's almost, do we even want to? <laughs> Can we just not? Can we not sully it with trying to pick it apart too much? But, um, but we're, we're really, we're looking at, at how to kind of get at that a little bit. Oh, I can't, I can't hear you. Yep. 
I'm what taking notes, by the way. I just want people to know. So I want to look back at something. You did say, um, and now it's like you're on trial. You did say, because remember, <laughs> this research has to fit my freaking um, narrative. Um, <laughs> you did say, and I'm just doing this for clarification because I want to yeah. make sure I'm using the terms properly. You did say the Working Alliance has <clears throat> what you called, it has a goal component. Agreement on. Agreement. agreement on. So. And then agreement yeah. upon a plan. Yeah, tasks. The task, so I call it a plan, like agreement on how we're going to get to the goal. Okay, good. And then the last thing I wrote down was a bond. Yeah, the bond. What the is bond. the bond? The bond is that is that um, that positive affective resonance or attachment that okay. you begin to feel for one another, right? Okay, so within the alliance, it, it has, not that it doesn't, it's, it's not black and white, right? So, you know... Within the alliance, it's more evaluated or thought of as that bond that we're working towards something together. It's a working alliance, right? It's an alliance. We're in on this together. We're in agreement and we're going in the same direction and we're going to achieve this goal together, right? And so it's that, it's the bond of that, right? But at the same time, you can't completely pick out, you know, um, well, there's no personal element to that at all. Like you, you can't do that. And so I think even in the, in the outcome measure that sort of is based within that, that idea of the Alliance, that really traditional idea of the Alliance is that one of the questions in it, I believe is um, I like my therapist, right? Yeah. I've actually, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. Oh my God. Could there? Could we get a broader question? Um, well, yeah. So that's that's a bit challenging. However, there's that thought of well, you know, how important is that? Do you? So would would a see? I'd love for a study to go. If someone says yes or no, then we ask the qualifying question. Please describe why. Yeah. Or what? Or what? Or what does what does like mean? Yeah. What does like mean? Sorry. And that's basically what I'd say. I just like to leave it a little more open ended, but that might not be good to try to pull stuff out for research because I've done some surveys within my co company with my customers, patients, and I find the broader and remember this isn't research people. <laughs> You know, the broader question gets me to, a, I think, a better answer on, on this stuff. Yeah, that, well, and that, that may and that's not work kind of, in research, right? But but it it, it can like so. If, for example, if you're developing a an outcome measure, um, when you are actually developing the items within that measure, depending on how you're going about doing it, you can ask those kinds of questions so you can get more clarity on on what that means, so that maybe it's not so broad. Let's say. Um, or, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it because I, I'm not a, I'm not an expert in, in, um, outcome measure development for certain. So I am not going to open myself up to scrutiny on that, but, but you, you can go in it and do more. Um, and that's what, that's what the, the student Aaron McCabe at the university of Alberta is, 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 you know, looking at is how do we decipher some more of those personal elements like the problem maybe isn't what we need to you know, look at, right. Or, or have the language within it, or maybe it is, or, but um, another thing is, is, is some people it might be very important and other people it's not. Exactly, right. Exactly. So, so it's not like, well, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you start to tease that out as right. well? You know? Yeah. See, now we're getting in. I think we are, I could be wrong. I think now, because everything you're talking about, again, I'm trying to figure out how to then with this research, it's not even complete yet. Again, 
we talked about this before I hit record, but how do we move this up? What I call, you know, upstream to the step before. So, so once the research shows you don't have to like the PT yet, how can I find out on a first phone call on a follow-up phone call before they're scheduled? If it's important to them. Mm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> yes. Here, That's a good point. And, and so if, if we're going to put the person, now is a great time to clarify on this, as everybody's going to start saying this is all I care about. If we're going to put the person in a scenario with um, evidence-driven medicine, evidence-driven physio, and we're going to put the person where that is held constant, then how can I make sure they will like their PT if that's going to be if, if, the, if everything else is held constant and we know that your research will show one way or the other, right? Or more research or someone's research shows, well, if they like, yes. And if they don't, so how do I find out if this is a person that needs to like their PT and then I can set them with the right person and it's going to be success all along. Yeah. And so is that, is that, uh, you know, a, a straight out question? Is that yeah. just sort of an assessment of personality, an assessment of, you know, I'm not sure, but I think it's a fair point because if you're trying to match, um, and here's, here's, here's the deal too, you know, some, some people, I don't, we're also asking people to be very aware of themselves. Like there are things implicitly, implicitly where we are, um, uh, we're evaluating people for all the time for threat. Do it, or do we resonate with this person? Do we, do we, are we afraid of them? Do they, yeah, do they exactly. make us anxious? Right. And that's, those are implicit neurobiological things going on with our autonomic nervous system all of the time. And so, so, and, and how do we, how do we, Oh, I think I just lost my train of thought, but we're asking people to be aware of whether it's important for them to like a healthcare provider. So let me, have they ever considered it? Right. Let me, give you, let me give you an example of something because this is resonating with me. So this, this is what I train and everybody, I would assume by now, if you're listening, you know where I come from and what my biases and beliefs are. My biases and beliefs are the, the, the biggest leverage point for a physio practice is, is everything that happens before they step foot within your practice. With everything held constant, once they arrive, like I said, evidence-driven care, a staff that, a staff provider staff that knows how to manage the conversation within the evaluation room, then it's my job to put the right person in front of the right provider. And if it is a patient that discharges after the evaluation, after the first visit saying, you know, I'm not going to come back. It's not right for me. That is the responsibility of the front desk and is not a loss by the provider. There's my bias. Now with that said, so this is what I've been doing and and I'm thinking this podcast is going to go really long. Um, This is what I'm thinking here is when someone calls and so I want your input on this, Maxie. When someone calls and during the conversation, they say, I'm calling because a coworker of mine, Betty Smith, saw, you know, Dr. Kyleen Pring for her low back pain. Uh-huh. And Betty recommended that I see Kyleen. Now, everybody stops there and we schedule her with Kyleen. 
I'm taking it one step further now, and this just happened recently. The next question that is asked of this person, and to me, this will bring out the awareness. This is where it's coming from. And if you guys could see me, I'm on video with Maxine and my hands. <laughs> so then the next question is, oh, Jerry, do you mind telling me what Betty told you about Kylene that made you call us? Because whatever Betty said to, sorry, I dropped my pen. Whatever drop the mic. Betty, drop the mic. Whatever Betty said to Jerry is actually the the likability, some kind of key factor. I don't know what. And, and it could have been. It could have been incredibly professional. It could have been a skill. It could have been. It could have been whatever, right? That. And then all I do, all we do, is write that down in forty-eight point font, pink ink. So that Kyleen sees that this is what was told to him. What was it? She has great manual skills. Oh, she really listened to me. I don't care what it is. I want that therapist to know because I call this, right? I call this priming the pump. Yeah. She's primed. But now, again, my job, my job in what I'm doing now is to put the right patient. And by the way, the patient calling your office may not be the right fit for your office. So let's remember that as I go into context, as I go into this conversation is that front desk job is it's also their job to say, you know what, this is not the right fit for you and we have the right place for you. So I'm not saying this is about scheduling and, and maximizing treatments and all that bullshit. I'm talking about getting the person to the right provider. Yeah. And so if I listen to that and I'm priming them again, if I know the evidence is going to be delivered, then I'm setting Jerry up for success with Kylene and at the same time setting Kylene up for success. I think we do, and I'm going to take a short dive here and then I'll stop. I think we do a horrible job of getting the right patients in front of the right providers because I say if you, and we all do it every week, every week you run into it, you're sitting across from a patient and you say, so Jerry, what would you like to get out of physical therapy or physiotherapy? And they look at you and say, well, I really don't know because I don't know what it is. And I'm like, the provider should just say, Jerry, you know what? I'm going to save us all 45 minutes and a boatload of money. And I'm just going to let you go home now. That needs to be taken care of before they ever arrive. And no patient should be sitting down in front of a provider in healthcare, I would say for that matter. So I'm going to stop there. And we're back to that. You know, how can we measure this stuff? And I, I think if we become better listeners, that we don't net, we do have to ask better questions, but we have to be better listeners too. So when you say better, when you say better listeners, what is, can you, like, what are you, well, how do you envision that? Like what, how does that look? That's a great question. So here's my context. I've been in healthcare for 25 years. So my context is you can't get any fucking worse in listening than healthcare. So my bar is so low, it's, watch this, it's, you're just going to blow your mind. I, I guess really being a better listener means getting people to ask better questions. So I believe I'm setting, I'll go back to what I just said. I believe I'm setting my people up for success and my practice up for success and the patients up for success. If I train that person taking the incoming phone call to hear that they were referred by a friend to then ask the right next question. So mm-hmm. that's the listening I'm looking for. Right. So it's not complicated. I, I wouldn't say we have to dive into 
you know, ways people learn and listen. I think it's just, I'll tell you what exactly not to do. I'll give you the phone number of 300 physio clinics in America and basically 299 of them will tell you how not to do it. Oh, can I get your name? Oh, can I get your insurance information? Oh, who sent you over? That, that's not, that, those are not the right questions. Now, we, before we kind of went on, 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 on record, we were talking about um, stories um, and opening up the space for that story or facilitating that or prompting that to come forth for patients. Does that, do you, do you, is that something you want your front staff doing or do you want them a little more focused or how do you? I want to back up. I really want to go into what you just asked me hardcore. Yet I want to ask you a question because I have you on here and you're the person to ask this. What does the research tell us about people telling stories in healthcare? Does it tell us anything, Maxie? I don't, I'm, I'm asking a genuine question here. Yeah, yeah honestly, and to be honest, I don't know that I know the answer to that as a direct, you know, um, if we allow people to tell stories, you know, if we're talking about um, trying to, to get an association between um, you know, a story allowing stories to be told and outcomes, yeah. I, you know what I mean? That's a pretty okay. hard thing to, to, um, to evaluate. Uh, and I don't know that it has been, I mean, what a little bit of the research, I just read a, a paper and it's open access actually, um, that, that went through a, a particular framework for, doing interviews. I can pass this along to you later. I just can't. And it's open access. I can't, I can't remember the name of it, but it just came out, I think. Um, and it was physical therapy focused. And, but they, they um, offered a lot of um, uh, literature on just, you know, how, to your point, how we interact in healthcare, inter, in healthcare interactions and how often we interrupt, you know, physicians, I think it's 18 seconds and, you know, and, and you ask a question and then, you know, patient wasn't allowed to actually complete the thought right? And the thought was never circled back to, right? So, um, so this wasn't an actual intervention study by any means, but, but it, it certainly did highlight the, the idea of we ask a question. And this was in my study too. I had therapists who said, we got to shut up, right? Like therapists, we need to shut up, ask a question and allow that patient to go where they need to go with it. Right. And, 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 you're going to get the things that you need to know from allowing them to speak, right? From, and, and there are things that you can do to guide that that are not obtrusive, right? They're contacts, they're contact statements, right? You hear, and this, and this is what, what I think is so important within the interaction is that we're, we need to be so, High, like our ears need and our eyes need to like if you think of the homunculus right the guy right our ears and our eyes need to be and our bodies need to be so big we need to be receivers and so we're really really gently but we're honing in on that and we're very present and we're very receptive this is the only thing that's going on right now me and you and you know these curtains or these walls or wherever we are and you are you are listening through that story for thoughts or beliefs right you can even have a framework in your mind 
okay, I'm going to, I'm going to really listen for, for beliefs, what I think this patient believes about their back pain, let's say, or I'm going to listen to today. I'm going to listen to maybe what their emotions are around this. Am I hearing frustration? Am I hearing despondency? Am I hearing whatever? Or you might be looking for, "Mm, today I'm really going to hone in on what this patient's body is doing while they're telling me their story. So that all of those things, if I'm, and you can, you know, to, to, to limit yourself, because there's a lot of information that can be coming in, right? So people, people ask me, well, how do I possibly, you know, handle all that? Well, you don't. You start off with, with well, I'm just going to listen to this for this in this story. And then you contact it. You go, oh, you sound frustrated when you were talking about your boss. That's not, or wow, that must have been really challenging. And then they go, yeah. Or they go, well, no, actually it wasn't. But they get to correct the story. They get to correct. And then you take in that information, right? So it's really about facilitating a space for that story to come out versus um, the other way I think that we, we were trained to do it is we're mining the patient for information. It's an interview. And we're mining them. I'm going to ask you a question. You're going to give me an answer. If I don't get the answer, I think I need in that moment because I'm thinking about the next patient that I got to get to and the patient I have in another cubicle, um, then I get really anxious as a therapist, right? So I think that that sort of, it's scary (laughs) because therapists will say, well, what about the time factor, right? If I let somebody just start talking, they're going to talk about everything. Right? You know what that tells me? They, they have no concept of how to manage a conversation. And that's what scares me. When someone says, well, I, when I do that and they just start talking, I want to go, so you're exactly the person who needs to learn how to do this then. But, right, yeah. You know, and so, so, I mean, I think there are ways. Um, I was speaking to some the Australian podiatrist and that question came up. I said, you want to know what if, if you feel that, I mean, because there are some people who come in who, who haven't been given the opportunity to tell their story. And so there's a lot to tell. And, and, and it's not even the story that they're talking about. It's all the frustration that they've had with other providers. And it is it. And if, when you open up that little crack for them, they walk in. Right. And, I don't know, like, I'm certainly, like I said to, to the podiatrist, I said, I'm certainly not going to tell anybody how to, I don't know how you're billing, I don't know who your payers are, I don't know who you're responsible to, I, I don't know any of that. But you want to know what, um, if, if you are seeing somebody for the first time and your front staff has maybe picked out that, okay, there's some baggage here, all right, there's a lot going on, maybe that first session, if you can somehow manage it, is all about that space, creating that safe space and allowing that story to come out. Now, there are times in the interview where you could say, or that conversation, let's say, where you can say, you want to know what, we have, we're at a point here in this, in this um, uh, uh, session where we can move on and I can do some assessment or we can do some treatment, right? Or we can continue to talk about this. Give the patient the choice. Roll that back, people. Listen to that again. That's brilliant. Or if that's not an option for you where you're working, you can also say, 
you know what? This is really important. I really want to know about this. I really want us to talk about this. But I, we do like from what we discussed, we wanna we wanna move on to this to to doing some exercise today. So can we put this on pause and can we come back to it next time you're in? And you want to know what? Sometimes it's not even about them telling you the story. It's just about you acknowledging that it's important. So get by the way, you're gonna. I gotta show you now. This is hanging up. So so the therapeutic alliance research I have. These are the top five attributes of therapeutic alliance. And number one is acknowledgement. And that's yep. what I heard you doing over and over in that. And then, so acknowledgement, and then that permission-based question. So I teach front desk and I teach staff. If you do these three things on every call, you'll win. To answer your original question, then I want you to go on. Acknowledgement, permission-based question, allow them to tell their story. That's how I train the front desk. <clears throat> that sounds, it, it fits right into if you've read the paper that I sent you, <laughs> just, just exactly, no, but just exactly that in, in terms of what, you know, the research that came out of my dissertation, like oh, this with the framework. Have, maybe this was a research, maybe this was a paper from you. As you can see, Which it's one? just a sticky note. The frame, yeah, so that, that was the, the, the um, how, uh, ways of establishing connections paper. And that there one unfortunately go. is not open access, although there still might be some, um, I, I think I had 50 free, um, 50 free clicks with the journal or whatever, um, with that one, but ways, a huge, one huge way is acknowledging the individual, acknowledging that person in front of you. Right. And there are various ways that you can do that. Um, so, so that acknowledgement and that collaboratory. That's a bond mindset. to me, to me still, that's the bond. That, that's the word. I, I know maybe the definition <laughs> is different, but that working alliance, a goal, a plan, and then a bond. And by the way, you're just kind of working it backwards. We're building the bond first and then we're going to, because now I'm working on making sure I know your goals and we're going to work on the plan. Do you mind if I jump in here? All right. One, yeah, cool. that's beautiful that you answered my question. Because you you answered the question you asked me where I went, I asked you about the story part, right? So that that was far more important than me going off on anything else. All I want to add to that, Maxi, to answer your question is yes, that's exactly how I train my. So you just ninety eight no ninety nine point nine percent of everybody who listens to that would take that away as what a great way for the provider to interview. Sorry what a great way for the provider to approach a patient. And I'd go, you're right. Let's move it up one step. And that's how I really connected with you. As I started re early on before I met you, as I started reading the expectations in Alliance, I'm just going to call it Alliance research now because now I don't. Yeah, that's fine. At the time when I was reading the Alliance research and expectations research, what really hit me was what, how can I move this up? the ladder. How can I move this up the stream so that again, when that provider, and you mentioned it, you guys roll it back. If the provider is set up for success by knowing because they got part of the story, I'm not asking my providers to do a subjective exam, or sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm not asking my front desk to do a subjective exam. I'm asking them to get a story and there are check boxes that they need to check by the end of the phone call. And so now Dr. Maxi is going to be treating, you know, Jerry, this crazy guy on Thursday at 10 o'clock. Yet before she walks in, she sees some of the highlights. Patients has been dealing with chronic pain, was talking about their frustration of nobody listens to them. 
how much would you, and I'm not saying I would charge for it, but just think for a second. I would pay money out of my freaking pocket to have that information before every single time I walked in with a patient because the value to me now as the provider and expert, and by the way, people want an expert as the expert now, and then I can grow that bond. And by the way, my front desk is going to get their goals. So I'm going to greet, Maxie is going to greet me in the waiting area by name, establishing herself as the expert, greet me by name, and she's going to reference my two goals before I even get up out of the seat. And she's going to know all that other stuff. It's on her paper. It's in her head walking in the room. Now, I'm going to make a broad sweeping term here, but we can't fail. And we can't fail in the sense of Maxi will get me to the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. So my front desk is doing my front desk. The people I'm training, my front desk, that's the way I train them. And that to me is why the largest leverage point waiting for that to happen in the room with the provider is setting everybody up for failure, complete failure. I, okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge that just you a go little for bit. It. You go. I'm gonna challenge that a little bit because remember you only have 45 and, and, minutes for an evaluation. <laughs> that's fan, I, that's fantastic, right? So, not that I not that I'm not I'm not I, certainly not disagreeing. I'm just trying to mull over it over my head because in my past life when I worked when I was in um I I worked in private practice for about four and a half years and then I went to um, an interdisciplinary um, occupational rehab center. Um, and worked um, because I wanted to um, work on an interdisciplinary team, uh, but also I wanted to I wanted to work with patients who were managing chronic pain um, and just got into a, got into that sort of world. And so I was on a team that specifically, you know, when we would get the file, for example, people who show up who are at Millard Health had already been through providers in the community, likely. Um, hadn't had success. So we were getting the 10% of people in general, the 10% of people who just, for whatever reason, couldn't move forward, right? They were stalled, right? In their, in their progression, um, in their healing. And so, so I were, and I worked with the 2% of those people who just had multiple things going on, right? So um, we had before any, because we worked in such a, you know, they saw the physician, we had, it was WCB workers compensation. So we had all their tests, we had their file, like, and they were thick files. So I kind of, I, I could, I knew I had a snapshot of this person when I went in. Right. But I, I tried to be very selective when I spoke with patients about what I, and it was almost like I had to kind of gauge with each person do I, do I say, you know what, um, from your tests, from your MRIs or CT scans or whatever, I know this, right? Or do I let them tell me about that? You know, so I guess what I'm saying, my roundabout way of getting to this question is, is getting all that information up front and having the therapist immediately say, I know what your goals are, la, la, da, 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 like, is that always the approach or is it kind of like you want to know what we may need to go through this process so that, so that that is the way we're developing that bond is me asking and attending to you and paying attention to you um, and wanting to ask those questions to understand things or you know what I mean? Like, am I, is, are we jumping the gun? Are we limiting ourselves in how we, how we begin that interaction? I don't know. 
so this is that's a great that thank you for setting it's like i threw you that softball here here's my take so this is now and i didn't plan on bringing this up but this is now where the patient experience fits in in my opinion so if you understand the bigger picture so let's say you max you're now setting up a system for a private practice right? And it's brand new. So you are going to figure out who your best customer is going to be because sorry world, every physio patient is not the best fit for your practice, Mm -hmm. right? So you're going to establish who it is you can help in your community. So you're going to hire a front desk based on that. Or sorry, let me back up. Sorry. You're going to figure out who you can serve. You're then going to map out their whole experience with you their journey, call it customer journey, patient Mm -hmm. journey with you. You're then going to start to insert the systems into their journey. And here is the key with that is you're inserting the systems into the journey with a hundred percent transparency of what happens at the next step and what happens the next step before. So I told you how the provider is greeting the patient in the waiting area, yet the work that was done before the conversations that were had before I would say to you matches in this manner matches that expectation. So now we're to expectations. Now, if we just look at that as, you know, did the person call and say, I need physiotherapy and they got scheduled and somewhere wrote this stuff down and getting greeted that way. Yeah. In that manner, maybe it doesn't work. I would say in the bigger picture of understanding the whole experience and knowing how they were primed, right? How the expectations were managed and manipulated so that you understood what to expect when you arrived, that this fits in. So yeah. that's my answer yeah. to that. So, it, and by the way, you notice I didn't say yes or no. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I'm, 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 I'm panning out now because my, I was talking about, I'm, I'm thinking I'm hyper-focused in right now on that patient yeah. clinician interaction. Right. I need to pan out and see the whole thing the whole therapeutic space and that therapeutic space begins even when that person is on the phone you know hasn't entered physically entered your clinic yet that's therapeutic space is being created and so it's more the network of all the people that are working within and together within that space that is yeah got it okay so because so here let, let, and let me set some more context with you um, because you asked, do we get the story? Is it appropriate? Or you asked about getting the story on the first phone call. And we do. And it's not a subjective exam. It's more like what you said. Almost what you said is occurring on the first phone call. And I teach them, by the way, here, here's another thing I love bringing up. And I have to now because, and I, I wasn't trying to get served up a softball either. The, the way to manage a conversation, the way to manage a conversation where someone else maybe doesn't want to buy into what you're saying or how you can keep control of a conversation, there's no better training than sales training on the face of the earth. So we'll just leave it at that. Then who's training? What's training? Sales training. A salesman. A salesman. Oh, a salesman. It's your California accent. So a a salesman (laughs) training, right? the, The two best resources I have right now on how to manage a phone call and an evaluation have zero to do with healthcare. So again, with that said, now I don't know where I was going because I was so excited to say my sales <laughs> uh, were good. But 
oh, the conversation at the beginning is, is they're getting, they're setting up Dr. Maxi so they know your name. By the way, before they come into the clinics I work with, they've seen a video, they've seen your face, you've spoken to them, right? And so this context has been set. So again, just going back to, so you greet them that way, yet again, I even then tra train the provider how to start the conversation with, I have some information. So you say, I have information, yet I'm going to probably ask you, I think set now in America, this may be different. So let's remember this and I'm, I'm yeah. serious about this. So I'm setting, don't forget some of this context is for what happens in the States. What people hate in the States are being asked the same questions all the time. We yeah. know the provider is going to be asking some of the same questions. So I teach the providers how to manage that expectation on the front end by saying, I'm going to ask you some of the same questions you've already been asked. Let me tell you why I'm going to ask you these. So that setting of the context again mm -hmm. is really important. Mm -hmm. And that's part of that whole patient experience that I'm preaching. Yeah, that's it. I love it. That's it. I love it because, because um, it, it's interesting. Like we, the there are certainly some of the therapists that I that I interviewed um, from for the study were some of them are very deliberate about their front staff um, the physical setup of the clinic um, you know and how how things were were managed probably not to the detail that and and the depth that you're talking about which I find very fascinating because. Um, that started to come out in interviews with patients and therapists was, was the connection with the front staff, the physical space. And so I have this whole separate analysis that I have to finish from that, from that um, data that, uh, that actually will get into more of the physical space, the social space, right? So there's all these spaces that we're working. We have personal spaces. We have the space of the, of the patient provider interaction. We have the sp physical space of the clinic. We have social spaces between, for example, how, Physiotherapists are communicating other like physiotherapists within the same clinic are communicating with other with one another. Are patients interacting with one another in the clinic? So there are all of these networks and interactions that are happening that create um, conditions for a therapeutic process to maybe be facilitated or to happen or for healing to be to 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 take place, right? Um, and I think you try and do what you're, what I'm hearing you saying is you're trying to do that. First of all, I'm just hearing about the social, the social pieces with you right now and just even very limited social pieces. So how your, how your front staff, um, the administrators, um, speak with the patients and, and how they, um, engage with them. Um, I'm not even getting a sense of how your front staff engages. Well, a little bit how front staff engages with your therapists, yeah. right? And then how other ther how therapists within your clinics, interact with one another? Do they work as teams? Do they? Well, th th this is so, so I've worked with different groups and I've learned this very quickly. I, I am practice. I don't even know if this is the right word, but it sounds good putting it together. I'm practice agnostic, meaning I, I'm not coming in and telling people you have to treat one-on-one. -on -one. You have to treat with an aide. You have to treat with an assistant. You have to do dry needling. You have to do manual therapy. What I do is what I'm trying to do with some of these more established, not trying, I am doing because meaning I've done it. What I'm doing with the established clinics is I'm going in and one of the, one of the first questions I ask him, Maxie, is show me your model. 
So show me your clinical model. I don't ask about the front desk. I want to know what the, because the places I'm working with, and, and I'm not there to do this, so I don't want this in anybody's mindset. I'm not there to change the clinical practice. Once I understand what the, and I'm going to use this dirty word again, what is being sold, mm -hmm. which is this clinical practice, I then move to the front end and say, okay, now show me the conversations. Show me now. I feel like I'm moving with you, Maxie. I feel like I'm moving more into the expectations research because what I do next is what is going on in those first four steps, right? Again, phone call to arrival. What is going on to manage expectations? Because if someone does not want the type of setting that you've established, you need to find that out before they arrive, right? And I run into clinics with high no-show cancel rates, 20, 30%. And when you break it out, you see that there's a lot of self-discharges after the eval. I mentioned this earlier, after visit one. To me, that was expectations were not managed. Value was not shared before they arrived. So we changed that conversation. And I've seen positive change. And no, it's not research but it is what it is. I've seen positive change is I've taken these clinics with high no-show cancel rates, move the conversation up, gather the story, make sure they understand the value is the team approach or the one-on-one -on -one approach. And then someone says, well, you know, I've had success in the past, but that wasn't the type of setting. Oh, tell me more. By the way, that's the first phone call. Oh, tell me more. And then you find out they're not the right fit. So you're not going to schedule because they're going to yeah. self-discharge. Yeah. And you know, I'm, you're talking expectations and I taught, and I'm thinking even just from a related, but non-clinical sort of a, a tangent with just relationships with people who are gatekeepers. Um, so, you know, now in the world that I'm in right now, I'm working with a lot of, you know, um, decision makers or deans or whatever of universities or, you know, different types of organizations across the country um, and you're working and, and if you want to, to be able to, you first you want to establish relationships with them, but man, you know who controls their schedule <laughs> and it's their executive assistants. And so it's really important to acknowledge the work that those assistants do, acknowledge them as people, um, not treat them as a widget in, that you have to get through, you know? And so for example, today I, I needed a, um, a report, completed and I had to, I, I was going to kind of nudge this, this, you know, really smart guy, um, to, to finish a report. And I thought, well, first of all, mm, I forgot to, I forgot to include, <laughs> forgot to include his EA in the original email, dum dum. Right. Uh, but, but at the same time, I went, you know, you want to know what, instead of me nudging him, I'm going to email her say, I'm sorry, so sorry. I apologize. I totally forgot to include you this time. Um, we need this for Monday. Well, you know, I was going to nudge him and she's like, okay, I'll try my best. She emails me this morning. She emailed him literally one word, please, period. He responds, I'm working on it right now. She emails me FYI. And I'm like, it's, it's first of all, it's the relationship that she has with him that she has that sort of a way she says this is important, but also because we've developed a relationship. Hopefully what I need, you know, is important and she's willing to go to bat for me and what I need. So it's, it's also, it's a, is she, and she wasn't saying, well, for sure I'll get him to do it. Like right. she, I, and I wasn't expecting that, but at the same time, 
because she and I get along well and because I believe that I, I appreciate her and I tell her that, that she's willing to go to bat for me when I, when I need something. Right. And so it's really about the relationship that we have. So check this out because you reference this and now with that example, you just made me think. So I'm in business for eight years. We're running, we're taking insurance. So we're contracted. I think that'll mean the same thing to everybody. So we're in network, right? We end up getting contracts that start going below our cost of care. So now we have to go out of network, which for lack, it's not a hundred percent true, but let's just go with people are going to have to pay more money now to see us. That's really where this whole patient experience and this managing expectations and understand the alliance arose from. And then ultimately the patient experience and mapping it out because that's what's been happening over the last eight years. There have been so many, right? What, I don't know what you guys call research, but there have been so many of these, right? I changed one thing and then went, holy shit. Yeah, this changed, but oh my God, look at all this other stuff that changed too. Yes. It's it's the ripple, the, the, the ripple or the mechanism, the, whatever that mechanism was, it had a cascading effect. Okay. So one of the things, one of the things I've been really telling people is one of the great things that came out of it was once I took a step back and mapped out my patient experience and identified each step and who was in charge of each step and by in charge, meaning admin, admin, front desk, back desk, provider, provider, whatever, and then rolled it out to the team. Immediately, the provider saw and appreciated how much work was being done to get that patient to them in front of them on Thursday at 10 o'clock. The relationship that you're referring to, you just, I didn't think about this till just now, the relationship changed. And what, and what I say is, again, a broad sweep, yet my providers stopped treating our admin office people as personal assistants and started treating them as people within the practice that were all working towards the same goal that they were, which was to get patients better. And so that relationship did change. And back to your point of, and then what I continue to work on further with my business and with other people's businesses is making sure that the expertise of all the different team members are shared with the patients, customers, whoever, Mm -hmm. so that they understand. So in my clinic, my, my physios are not allowed to answer any billing questions. I don't want the patient to look at them as a billing person. I want the patient to look at them as their partner that they built a bond with, that they have a goal with, that they have a plan with, and that yes, finances are part of healthcare in America. Good news here's your expert right here in our office, right? And they're not going to go, I can't help you. They're going to say, you know what, Maxie? Bethany at the front desk can help you with this. I know nothing about this. I'm here to work on this other stuff with you. I'll tell you what we're going to do today. Because let's say you walked in and started with this billing issue. And they'll say, Maxie, I'm going to make sure we're going to drop off five minutes early and I'm going to bring you up to the front and make sure you and Bethany have this discussion so you can get this done today. Yet, I want us to get back to your goals and our plan and then I'll make sure this finance thing is taken care of. Will that work for you? Again, acknowledgement, permission, mm-hmm. question, boom, we're done. Now, is that reasonable? Great. No, I need to I need to figure this out right now. Okay, well then. Let's go. Let's do it. Right. You walk them up <laughs> and you can't lose. And what I want people to understand, 
Oh, there we oh, go. Bella. Finally, Bella. Last time it's been my dog every freaking time, people. So, um, <laughs> is I want people that are listening to this to understand we started with this alliance talk and we're going to get back to it because I still want you to talk about the common factors paper. We may stop this and make that the next episode, to be honest. <laughs> um, is I want people to understand. Hold that's on, awesome. just wait. No, just, that's that's all good. It's a pause because we got something coming. Come this way. Come this way. Okay. This is awesome. It's usually my dogs barking. This is the first time we've done a podcast. So two things I want to go back to. I'm taking notes. Yes. Homunculus was said on my podcast for the first time ever. And now for the first <laughs> and time ever. I think ever, I referenced it, that correctly. No, it was awesome. I knew exactly. And actually it brought a picture to me and it, I thought it helped me to better understand what you were saying. I loved it. Secondly, that's the first time it's been someone else's dog barking. So we have a lot of firsts today. So Maxie is, is just <laughs> first, first, first. Yeah. First. So I want people to understand that this Alliance talk and go back to the beginning because now I'm wiser about what the Alliance is. We've gone into the expectations just a little bit. Um, you know, yet you're hearing about it's a relationship with the front desk. It's a relationship with the provider. It's, it's how to question people, how to run the evaluation. Is it even an interview? That might be because interviews are one-sided. Maybe that's not the term we use anymore. That's well, what I want people to take away from this. Yeah. And, and that's a whole other, like the way we, the language that we use, um, I think needs to evolve um, because the language that we use continues to limit us in, in how we approach, you know, our, what we do during the, how, how our approach. So when we say interview an interview is, I am going to ask a question. Yeah. You were going to give me an answer. I'm going to ask you a question. You're going to give me an answer. So even when I say, when I say with my, you know, within the study that I, we did semi-structured interviews, Right. That means that I, I, I had a guide. Um, I had some key things we wanted to talk about, uh, but I really tried to let things go where they needed to go. As long as, you know, we got to, you know, we didn't go too far off on a tangent. Right. But when we say interview, so, so there are other, there are other research methods that you would say, well, no, this is a conversation. We're having a conversation. So that changes the role of, of what the researcher is going to be doing. So right now we're not doing it. You and I are doing an interview. We're having a conversation that doesn't happen. Probably I'm going to say in most, in, in a lot of clinical interactions, right? Um, yeah, I shouldn't even say a lot. I'm just going to say, I think we need to be aware of when that's happening when we are mining for information, when we are in con and when we're in conversation. Um, and maybe there are points in time, there are different points where interviewing and, and getting information is more important. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of like, okay, really? Because if we, we say, well, it's history, we're getting the history or we're getting the, we're doing the interview, right? I think it, I think it limits us. I think it does for sure. I want us to stop here. I think that's a, actually, I think that's a perfect place to stop the power of words and our words. And just thinking it again, just to recap where we've come from is talking this alliance and talking relationships and a bond and a plan and a goal and, you know, and listening to this, because what I'm going to do is we're going to stop here. 
this is going to be episode one, and then I want us to um, to talk about the common factors paper. So I want to thank Maxie for coming on for this one um, and spending way more time than I asked her to commit with me. And she doesn't know, but I'm not going to let her go since we stopped this one. <laughs> but uh, I want to thank you, Maxie, and uh, we'll start the next conversation around common factors. So thank Absolutely. you for listening. And I'm going to click off and right back on with her. You're going to have to wait two weeks, but I appreciate you uh, <laughs> listening to this. And uh, please share it with everyone because I think this information is invaluable and we all need to be part of this. So thank you all. Part of the conversation. Bingo. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the Healthcare Disruption Podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes and write us a review. We'd love to uh, see your thoughts and opinions on this. And uh, if you really like what you heard, then why don't you subscribe so you make sure and get the uh, latest notifications every time we post a new episode. If you want to stay in touch with Jerry, make sure and head on over to jerrydurhampt.com and click on the stay in contact button. And I tend to hang out on Instagram at jerrydurhampt and Facebook at jerrydurhampt. Thank you for listening and we look forward to seeing you again. Bye-bye.